as you pass There are signboards on the windows Saying, wait here, second class And to me, the whir and thunder Cluck of running gear Seems to be forever saying, saying Second class, wait here Wait here, second class Second class, wait here Wait here, second class Second class, wait here About the first thing an Australian does in Wellington is to have a beer. Then he goes to look for lodgings, falls into the hands of an unprincipled hash house tout and gets run into the worst diggings in the city. Then he has another beer. New Zealand beer is far superior to the stuff we get in Australia. Dr. Gregory Bryan just shared an excerpt from Henry Lawson's 1893 work, New Zealand from an Australian's point of view. I'm Anne-Marie Hansen, and together with Professor Bryan, in today's episode of the Henry Lawson's Crumbs podcast, we discuss Henry Lawson's three trips to New Zealand. Welcome, Dr. Bryan. Welcome, Anne-Marie. I suppose before we start, uh, it would be helpful if you would give our listeners a quick overview of the three trips Lawson made to New Zealand. In recent episodes, we've talked about Henry Lawson being in Burke. Uh, in 1892 and 1893 and in our last episode we actually discussed his return from Burke and the fact that the story about it in a wet season ends with bright sunshine and ends in on a very um, optimistic note. So that was the way Henry was feeling when he returned to Sydney uh, in June of 1893 but it didn't take very long until he was fed up with Sydney as well. And so his first trip to New Zealand occurred at the end of 1893 when he left and went to New Zealand and he ended up being there for about eight months. So that was 1893-1894. And then again in March of 1896 he made a very brief visit to, uh, to New Zealand and that was at a time when he was actually engaged to be married. And then a year after that, in March of 1897, he made his third trip to New Zealand, and on this occasion, he actually ended up being there for 11 months. So three trips of different durations and for different purposes and with different uh, degrees of success. But certainly that first time that he went, he had no intention of coming back to Australia. He wrote, and if you meet a friend of mine who wants to find my track, say you, he's gone to Maryland and isn't coming back. So that's how he was feeling when he left uh, towards the end of 1893. In our last uh, episode, as I said, we talked about Henry's travels to Burke, but he also recorded his impressions of his trip to New Zealand in 1893 too. So he wrote a, a rather lengthy piece called Coming Across, which was uh, published in a New Zealand newspaper. So let's talk about that one first off. What did you make of that, uh, that article, Anne-Marie? Well, I have a couple of questions. How, how long would the voyage across have taken? The, the, sto- the, the article suggests two days, two nights. Yeah, much Is longer, that- much longer. In fact, uh, I read that this this first voyage actually took eleven or twelve days. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an interesting portrait of 
the journey across and it as in you know typical Lawson's style populates the experience with various figures some tall tale tellers the swish the britisher and of course several women and i i found the collection of people that populated the ship really interesting and i also found that the comment uh, maybe i'll just quote for a moment when australia was fading from view we shed a tear which was all we had to shed at least we tried to shed a tear and could not it is best to be exact when you are writing from experience and so your suggestion at the top of the show about uh Lawson's desire to escape australia and thought that his move to new zealand was going to be more permanent than it ultimately turned out to be is really reflected in this piece yeah. your thoughts no it certainly is he he tried to shed a tear so that certainly again that reflects that uh disgust or um that sense of being fed up with australia that he was feeling at the time and you talked about the uh characters that he included in uh, in his descriptions of the voyage and you know interestingly given what we talked about last week he makes a point of uh of emphasizing some drunken shearers who happen to be aboard as well so again perhaps further reflecting some of that uh distaste that he had developed for the uh for shearers now another thing interestingly about about there being shearers and such that he was meeting he actually did have a saloon passage it was given to him but he chose as he he does indicate in a sort of an understated way in the article that he actually chose to travel steerage because he felt that he could get better copy uh in steerage so so I think that that's interesting that he did have an opportunity to travel first class but preferred to mingle with and describe uh the people who were in steerage another thing that i found interesting was the conclusion of the piece where there's that comment about the anxiety of getting work and he writes pity we couldn't go to sea and sail away forever and see and, and never see land anymore or not till better or brighter days if they ever come and so the anxiety that accompanied probably Lawson of course and the other people on the ship who similarly shared the hope that the move from Australia to New Zealand would well, had um is present and well i was wondering if you wanted to comment on that well you're right in i think that that's a really important part to emphasize because it does certainly end in a rather pessim on a rather pessimistic note this piece as it's currently or or now published is just one particular piece but it actually a- appeared initially in the New Zealand Mail that newspaper it was actually it actually occurred in two newspaper issues on the 15th and the 29th of December so there's actually two places where it ends and the first place similarly ends on a rather depressed or pessimistic note the first piece ended and you will recall that There's lots of discussion amongst the passengers on the ship about the sinking of the Dunbar. So that was a uh, a ship that had been wrecked. Let's see. I guess it was about 40 years earlier. It was in uh, 1857. There was only one survivor. 121 people aboard ship drowned and only one person survived. So there was lots of discussion 
as they went past where different people thought the ship had been wrecked. So, and it, it keeps occurring throughout this first part of the story. One person saying, oh, that's where the Dunbar was wrecked. And then somebody else a little bit later on says, that's where the Dunbar was wrecked, etc. Anyway, so this first, the first installment of Coming Across ended where Henry Lawson wrote, we turned in feeling comfortably dismal and almost wishing that we had gone down with the Dunbar. So, I mean, that's, yeah. that's at least equally a pessimistic note upon which to end as the, uh, the end of the second instalment where you said that, you know, his desire was perhaps just to keep sailing away in hopes for better times, as you said, if they ever come. So, so I think that this gives us a good reflection of the way that Henry was feeling. You know, I said about Australia, but I guess really it's actually about uh, life in general. This piece, too, that we've been talking about coming across is in keeping with the convention, it seems, in Lawson's writing about recording first impressions of experiences and places. Now, he had only been in New Zealand for two weeks, as I understand it, when he published in a New Zealand newspaper a piece entitled, entitled New Zealand from an Australian's point of view. I'm wondering if you might comment on this impression in intense piece right so i mean as you said he's only he'd only been there two weeks that's when it was published so of course it had been written before then so i mean i expect that he started to write it the day that he that he landed or certainly within the first couple of days it's interesting that he you know that introductory quote that i read at the start of today's episode was taken from this new zealand from an australian's point of view and so he says there, you know, that the first thing an Australian does is get some beer and then he goes looking for lodgings. Now, obviously, he should have done it the other way around because as it turned out, he spent the first few nights in New Zealand sleeping in sewerage pipes. Now, fortunately, they weren't yet laid and performing their function. They were just uh, lying on top of the ground in a park, but failing to find anywhere else to stay, that's where he stayed for the first few nights. So he would have certainly done better to look for lodgings before he settled himself <laughs> behind a or on top of a bar stool. But in that uh, particular piece, he, he describes uh, several things that he, he sees and visits. Uh, he mentions uh, Wellington's old government buildings, and he refers to them as the largest wooden buildings in the world. Now, actually, at that time, they were the second largest. And in fact, they remained so for many, many years. I think it was uh, the late 1990s before they slid down the, the scale of largest wooden buildings. Uh, but I think if I'm remembering correctly, there's a, there was a wooden building, a wooden uh, Buddhist temple in Japan that was actually bigger. But Henry uh, seems not to have been aware of that. But, you know, Henry says... What an incredibly big fire that would make if ever it catches fire. So that was one of his first impressions. He also visited and talked about the botanical gardens and he compared those to the gardens in Sydney. He visited the museum. Another thing that he made mention of was the earthquakes that seemed to be fairly common in New Zealand. And he said that with earthquakes in mind, uh, the people might be best served spending uh, some time in church. He said, we would suggest more churches and more people going to them oftener, oftener, I should say oftener, 
and more Sunday schools, and less cricket and cigarettes for the boys in knickerbockers, and more prayers said generally. So I think that he was perhaps a little bit uh, shaken, to, uh, to use that pun, by the uh, <laughs> prospect of, of earthquakes in New Zealand. So there's some of his impressions that he recorded there almost as, as soon as he got into New Zealand and specifically into Wellington. Now, I, I, sorry, you go ahead. Well, I, I was uh, struck by the uh, positive conclusion, uh, you stand a grand chance to lead nations, he says, of New Zealand. Um, so I thought that was a lovely hat tip to his new new homeland, so to speak. One of the reasons that he made mention of New Zealand being a leader was because his arrival coincided with New Zealand women getting the vote. I think he landed there the, a day before the, the general election. So it was on the 28th of November of 1893 that more than 90,000 New Zealand women went to the polls and uh, in so doing New Zealand became the first country in the world where women were granted the vote. So that was one of the things that Henry was referring to New Zealand there as a leader. And he mentioned it in several pieces about this, uh, this uh, granting of women the right to vote. In the poem, Here's Luck, it, actually you talk about Lawson's New Zealand experiences in several chapters of your book, Mates. But you comment uh, that Here's Luck really is a tongue-in-cheek poem published in Fair Play. And I found it humorous, but a little concerning <laughs> as, as a woman, because it seems to, like you suggest, that fair play seemed to bemoan the woman's vote. So too does the, the, does the poem. So he says, pipes will smoke and liquor run while old, old Lang Syne is sung. And so ultimately, despite the, the concern or the, the fear uh, that of, about the woman's vote, ultimately it seems to suggest that things will go on as they always have. The thing that he's scared of, he said, I mean, he, he starts off very early in the piece. He says, I'm glad that women has the votes. And I'm, I'm sure actually that is the way he felt, uh, you know, largely because of his mother's influence uh, and, and what she was striving for back in the colonies in Australia at that same time. So, I mean, I have no doubt at all that, that, that this is a cause that Henry Lawson supported. But in this poem, he expresses his fear that, well, if women start to have more of a say and to take more control, his worry was that drinking and smoking would be banned. And of course, there were, you know, there was movements or agitation in those directions. So that, that's his reference. I mean, as you, you know, you referred to the, the newspaper itself, Fair Play. And so that was something that they were, I guess, warning their readership about was that there were these cries for prohibition, for, for banning alcohol and then taking it even further and banning uh, tobacco. And of course, we know that they were two of Henry Lawson's well, great loves, I guess, for want of a better term. And so that, that's the thing that he was afraid of. You know, they want to stop our beer, he says it at one point. But you're right, he says that uh, as far as he understands it, uh, as long as things stay the same, or in fact, they are more likely to stay the same, and he'll be happy with that if they do.
going back to that um, New Zealand from an Australian's point of view, I'll just read an excerpt from there too about this same, this same issue of, of women's right to vote. He says, your action with regard to your women has immortalized the land and will perhaps revolutionize the world. So I think that that's a more serious and more accurate reflection of the way that Henry felt. that This was indeed a, a grand thing and something worthy of tremendous celebration. And we can be sure that his mother back in New South, in Sydney, in New South Wales, was certainly celebrating it because she would have seen it as a step toward women in Australia also getting the vote. And how long was it between New Zealand and Australia's women? So women got the vote in South Australia in 18, in December of 1894, so a year later. And then in New South Wales, where Louisa was, I believe it was 1902. So in New Zealand, from an Australian's point of view, when he says you stand a gr grand chance to lead nations in this respect, obviously they did. So now I said that uh, Henry Lawson left Australia feeling fed up and, and disgusted with his own country. And that seems, those sort of sentiments seem to be reflected in Henry's story, his country after all. Yeah, the it's again another sketch, which I'm gaining such an appreciation for Lawson's ability to capture the uh, emotion surrounding an event or an experience and sadly this this sketch is presents quite a negative portrait of Australia uh, with him saying it's the best country to get out of that I was ever in <laughs> and so <laughs> um, I'm not sure how serious he is in his condemnation but it certainly presents a, a disheartening portrait of Australia but I loved the ending and perhaps that's just the romantic in me, but he's the, the, the stranger or the exile. I'm not sure what we want to call him. The main figure, it, it, there, there's a transformation in him as the, as the stranger is traveling. He sees the gum trees in New Zealand that remind him of the gum trees, obviously, in Australia. And he seems to come to a change of um, perspective. He says... Well, I don't know. I reckon I'll just take a run over to Australia first. So it seems that though the the portrait or the sketch is cloaked in negativity, it ultimately doesn't betray the some of the beauty in Australia. Right. No, I, I think I think that uh, like you you wondered how serious he was. You know whether it's a, a comical piece or not. I don't think so. I think that that he, that the protagonist's feelings are a reflection of Henry Lawson's feelings when he left Australia. As you said, you know, the best country to get out of. Uh, what else do you say? It's only a mongrel desert, uh, the worst dried up and godforsaken country I was ever in. Uh, and then he also said, I was born there. That's the main thing I've got against the darned country. So I, I think that the, those sorts of sentiments were exactly as Henry was feeling when he left Australia. This, however, was published five months after his return to Australia, so a year after Henry had, uh, had arrived in New Zealand. So his, you know, his mindset had changed again, as, as we see it often does with Henry, and I mean, that's the way it is with people generally, isn't it? 
that we do mm-hmm. have changes of heart. I think that Henry very often, and again, this is not uncommon, I think that Henry was one for whom the grass was always greener. And so I think that when he was in Australia, he was very, well, we saw when he was in Burke, he was very excited to get back to Sydney. Then when he was in Sydney, he wanted to get to New Zealand. When he's in New Zealand, you know, we see in this piece that there's a desire to get back to Australia, etc. So I think that, um, I mean, it can certainly be read as a humorous or lighthearted piece, but I actually think that underneath it all, the sentiments being expressed Firstly, in a negative manner, and secondly, in a more positive, optimistic manner, I think that they are accurate reflections of the way that Henry Lawson was feeling about his country, and the title is His Country After All, so the way that Henry was feeling about his country at different times during this period of his life. Now, Lawson wrote about his time in New Zealand in another autobiographical piece entitled Pursuing Literature in Australia. What were some of the things he recorded there about his time in New Zealand? Yeah, so I mean, he he talked about what he'd done during these months that he was in New Zealand. So this piece was written uh, 1899. So this was written, you know, six years or so later. So he's looking back and he talked about the fact that he did some writing work in New Zealand and, and, and had some publications that he was paid for in New Zealand newspapers. He also says that he did some house painting, which was something that he often fell back on. Uh, He does talk about the fact that for about three months he was mostly unemployed. Again, you know, he'd gone to New Zealand full of optimism, but that would have been one of the reasons why he started to look back towards Australia. He said that he had a a job for two weeks in a sawmill cutting trees for the mill in, I think, rather rough country. At the end of it, he was fired. Him and, and one of his mates were fired And the boss said, we weren't Bushmen, is what Henry Lawson says, which, strange to say, hurt me more than any adverse criticism on my literary work could have done at the time, which is an interesting thing to say because Henry Lawson is known to have been very uh, sensitive about criticism of his own work and certainly sensitive to an editor's interference in his work. So the fact that he was hurt by this comment about not being a Bushman um, is an interesting one. And I guess he was thinking that he was very much a Bushman after his experiences out back, um, you know, back of Burke. So I think that that's an interesting two weeks that he spent. Then he also says that for about four months, he got a job on a telegraph line. And so he was obviously involved in erecting the telegraph. And it, for the way that he describes it, it was very hard, uh, very hard work, but it actually physically had a good impact upon him, and, and not just physically, actually, also in, in a, uh, I guess, a, an internal or a spiritual manner as well. He says, in four or five months, I was too healthy to read or write or bother about it or anything or to hate anybody except the cook when the duff didn't eventuate at reasonable intervals. So, I mean, this hard work, it, it I guess, um, made it so that he wasn't doing any writing, but he obviously was feeling very happy and very healthy and had hatred for nobody and nothing except for when the cook didn't provide the right meals at the right time. Now, oh, that's re- interesting. It's interesting because I read that ironically, like he was saying he was too healthy to read and write, meaning like he was worked too hard 
right? His body was abused, so to speak, by the physical labor. And, and that, that perhaps could be the case. I actually think that he, this was actually a time of contentment, that he was happy hmm. that he had this uh, secure job and that he was um, working hard and, he, and presumably had made some good friendships with the people that he was working with because, you know, adversity sometimes can bring people closer together. And so just how tough this job was, I think, had that impact. And, you know, we saw when we talked about in our last episode, he hadn't fit in with the shearers. And I think that he was feeling uh, accepted and valued in this particular group. And so he was feeling very content. Uh, and it was only he left us, he left New Zealand, left that job and left New Zealand only because he had the, a, the promise of a job with a newspaper, the union uh, newspaper, The Worker, was a weekly, but they had made the decision to go to a daily. And so the more issues required more work and more people to do that work. And so he was offered a job, a full-time job, on the daily worker. And so he left New Zealand, went back to Australia. But when he got there, um, the, the daily worker didn't, uh, didn't work out and so, in fact, I think it was actually belly up before he even got there and actually just stayed as a weekly. But so, unfortunately, his reason for leaving New Zealand didn't uh, turn out to be um, something that eventuated for him. And so he was back in Australia. It was about a year or so later uh, that Henry made his next trip to New Zealand. I think it was about a year and a half, actually. And in the meantime, Henry had been engaged, or had or actually was engaged, to Bertha Brett. The two were had made the decision to get married, but I think I've said this before, that Henry wasn't one for saving very much money. And so they didn't feel that they had enough money to get married. And so they made the decision that Henry would go back to New Zealand to try to get some more work and to save some money so that they could, when he got back to Australia, they could um, start their married life with a little bit more money in the bank. So that's why Henry made his second trip to New Zealand in uh, 1896. Now, as Bertha tells the story in her, in her recollections, Henry was so lovelorn and so um, uh, desperate to be back with his fiancée that as soon as he got to New Zealand, he jumped on the next ship and went straight back to Australia. Now, I don't know how literally we can take that if it really was the next ship, in which case he was probably only in New Zealand for a few hours, but certainly he was not there for very long at all. And he headed back to New Zealand, uh, sorry, from New Zealand back to Australia. Now, as he traveled back, he wrote a, a poem, a love poem to his uh, fiancée, to Bertha, and the poem was called After All. <laughs> yes, it is lovely, quite sentimental. And I found that, I found it sad, actually, knowing where the story of Lawson and Bertha goes. Because it does feel that he credits Bertha, at least at this point, with making a man out of him or, or, or helping, as he says, drive the worst away. And um, he writes... Rest, for your eyes are weary, girl. You have driven the worst away. The ghost of the man that I might have been is gone from my heart today. And so the hope that he feels perhaps at this moment for himself to turn himself around um, is quite evident. And he concludes with, we'll live for life 
and the best it brings till our twilight shadows fall. My heart grows brave and the world, my girl, is a good world after all. And so there's such a celebration of life or renewed positivity towards it. And he uses phrase like good world, kind world, grand world. And so there's such a hopefulness and positivity in this poem that uh, perhaps does not play out in the ultimate relationship. Yeah, it's terribly sad to think of it in that way. But yeah, it's very clear that at this, at this particular stage, he's very much in love and he is feeling very, very optimistic. Right. And his, his desire to return from New Zealand back to Australia seems motivated 100% by his change of spirit and his belief in Bertha's role in his change of spirit. So I thought it was it was lovely. Now, a little under a year after they were married, Henry and Bertha traveled together to New Zealand and Lawson was appointed to a teaching job in a ro remote Mary community. Mary, yeah. Okay. Um, could you talk a little bit about that and some of the writings that he did that went along with that experience? Yeah, so he was he was appointed to this uh, to this teaching position. He started in May. Now, at this particular uh, school, which I believe was just a one-room school, uh, I think in the year before Henry was uh, appointed, as I recollect, there was 13 students who were registered, and I think the average attendance was 10. So it was a very small school. He was appointed in May, and so they had not had a teacher since the end of the previous year, presumably, you know, sometime in December. So so they were quite desperate to get a teacher. Henry Lawson certainly had no teaching qualifications. And in fact, I think that we can be fairly sure that some of his students, although they were children, actually had more formal schooling than did Henry. Uh, so he, he taught there. So started in May. And he resigned in September, so he was there only for a few months. The, the teaching duties actually were spread between Henry and Bertha, and I can't mm. remember exactly how, the, how it was broken down, but uh, in Bertha's recollection, she specifies which uh, subjects Henry taught and which ones she taught. And I think it was largely just whoever knew the subject the best uh, taught the subject. So one of the, a, a poem that Henry Lawson wrote is called Pigeon Toes. And that actually is told from the perspective of a woman, a female teacher. And so I think that he's there writing as if from the perspective of, uh, of Bertha. But I think it also gives us a reflection of some of the things that uh, Henry Lawson was thinking about this this job as uh, being a teacher I think that uh, he he suggests there that the the students uh, were behind his and his wife's back were, were calling them names and making fun of them uh, again with this uh, this woman's voice in mind or this first person narrator she says that they so referring to the children they do not dream the teacher knows what brutal thoughts are said the children call me pigeon toes, green eyes and carrot head. And then further on, he says, I preach content and gentleness and mock examples give. They little think the teacher hates and loathes the life they live. So there we're starting to see Henry's, uh, I guess, disdain for this Maori way of life. We obviously have 
you know, a very Eurocentric view here that Henry is presenting in this piece and then in a prose piece as well called A Daughter of Maryland. But so in this, uh, this poem, the teacher is really just dreaming of an escape, of uh, dreaming of getting away. And, and so that's actually how it ends uh, when the teacher's brother shows up. His eyes, a proud, triumphant smile, his arms outstretched and come, for Jack and I have made our pile and I'm here to take you home. And that's the, the optimistic ending for Henry Lawson is actually to get away from, to get away from this teaching job. And we get a more of a sense of how Henry's feeling about the job in A Daughter of Maryland. So this is a, well, by Henry's standard, a, a fairly long uh, sketch, a sketch of poor class Maoris is what he subtitles it. Uh, there's no doubt here that uh, the, the, um, the school teacher that he's talking about in the third person in this case, there's no doubt that it is Henry himself. It actually begins the new native school teacher who was green, soft and poetical and had a literary ambition. And so that's, there are obviously elements of Henry to be poetical and to have literary ambition and to be green as far as being a teacher at least. And then the, this teacher's name, or he's referred to by the uh, Maori community members as uh, Mr. Lawrence, and we've talked about how thinly veil, veiled lots of uh, Henry's references are, and to call somebody Mr. Lawrence is obviously a very thin veiling of Mr. Lawson, but uh, going back to that, Mr. Lawrence, I've uh, read some of Henry Lawson's letters where he said that, for whatever reason it was, uh, the Maoris were not able to pronounce Lawson, and so they actually called him Mr. Lawrence, is what he uh, writes. So, in this case, Lawrence is even a more thin veiling of this Lawrence. Uh, but so, again, we have very Eurocentric uh, views here. The teacher obviously feels superior to the, um, to the Maori community members, and certainly the students. He describes them in lots of... Uh, unflattering ways, but what he makes clear is that he believes, he, he and his wife are doing the very best that they can to help these students, and particularly this uh, August, um, but it's, uh, it's somewhat of a lost cause as far as he sees it. But his desire, here that he, one of the desires that he expresses in putting in this uh, extra effort to look after August is that he has this plan to write a romance about her, and you know, I don't, I don't think that he means in any way sort of a lovey-dovey, you know, romance at all. But uh, he talks about uh, writing this romance. I think that the romance that he sees is that uh, he can, uh, in some way, lift her above her otherwise uh, predestined station in life, as as he sees it. So he says, anyway, the copy he'd get out of her would repay him for this and other expenses a hundredfold. So any money that he was investing in buying her or providing her with, um, with whatever she needed, he saw that it would be repaid um, by this, this wonderfully romantic story that he would eventually be able to write. The only comment I would add, uh, excellent comments, the only one I would add is that you see Lawson's innate desire 
to capture the moment or to express what he's seeing and experiencing from coming across where he says, I, I would ride, he chose to ride second class so as to get a better copy. And then again, at the conclusion in Daughter of Mary Land, uh, where he, you know, intimates that it was in the hopes of getting a novel that he gave his time and energy to this situation. So despite, you know, the positive and the negatives that came along with this experience in New Zealand, he certainly did get some copy. He did, he did that, uh, and it was published. It's actually interesting that this uh, particular piece was published in a, a literary magazine, and Banjo Patterson was one of the two editors for that magazine. So Banjo Patterson actually was the person or one of the two people that accepted this for publication, and that was uh, at Christmas, in the Christmas, uh, I think it was 1897 that it was published. So he, this experience that he's describing was in 1897. One, one last thing that I should make mention of is that uh, they moved from this remote community certainly because they weren't happy with the teaching job or at least Henry wasn't happy with the teaching job but also because Bertha was pregnant and so they didn't think that it would be uh, good for her to be having the baby in such a remote location and so they moved back to Wellington at the start of October I mentioned that he resigned in September, moved back to uh, Wellington, and then their first child, Jim, was born on the 10th of February, 1898. So their first child was born about uh, three or four months later. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and we hope you'll join us next week when we discuss Henry Lawson's classic story, The Drover's Wife. I remember, oh man, I remember the tracks that we followed are clear The jovial last nights of December The solemn first days of the year Long tramps through the clearings of the timber Short partings on platform and pier I remember, old man, I remember The tracks that we followed are clear 